From Gimlet Media, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk to athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. When you find yourself at the head of a company you started four years ago, a thing you find yourself doing, actually, I'm going to drop the you because I am talking about myself. The thing I found myself doing was reading lots and lots of books and articles about leadership. And when you read these books and articles about leadership, there's a couple things that come up over and over. Two pillars of advice that you tend to get. One, you have to be persistent. And two, you have to be willing to pivot. So persistence, you have to like focus, focus on the thing that you and you alone know how to do best. You have to just keep on doggedly pursuing it through all sorts of obstacles until you finally get it to the place where it's actually working. No company has been built without persistence. And then there's pivoting. You have to just make something, see if it resonates. If it doesn't resonate, you have to change that thing and make something else and see if that resonates. And lots and lots of huge companies have been built by pivoting as well. But those two lessons are sort of at odds with each other, right? Pivoting is, in many ways, the opposite of persistence. And persistence is, in fact, the absence of pivoting. You can't persist and pivot at the same time. You sort of have to choose. And it's hard because... I would definitely put myself in the persistent camp. I have this kind of personality where I can get lost in something. I zone everything out. People will be saying my name and I don't hear them. And that's sort of what I took as the rule for how to succeed. Persistence is the key to succeeding. But then, you know, starting Gimlet, there were lots of things that I persisted at that didn't work. We spent years making certain shows that we ended up having to cancel. And that happens a couple of times and you read a couple books about pivoting. And I started to wonder like, is this thing that worked for me, is it now going to work against me? So I'm thinking about all this stuff. And a while ago, I was at this conference, and I saw this guy talk. His name's Evan Marwell. He told a story that was a very, very clear endorsement of the philosophy of persistence. And I found it, first of all, fascinating. And second of all, really helpful to understand, okay, here's the strategy of persistence, and here's what it looks like broken down over time. His story begins about seven years ago, and just a a little bit of background on Evan. He's one of these serial entrepreneurs. He'd started companies in a bunch of different industries, finance, telecommunications, software, consumer retailing. He'd sold most of them for a nice pile of cash. And he was at the point in his life where he was looking for his next challenge. But he didn't want it to just be another company that he was starting, make a bunch more money. He wanted to do something that would make a difference in the world. But what exactly would that be? He didn't know. And then... He came across this book. I read a book by a guy named Felix Roaten, one of the lions of Wall Street, uh, the guy who saved New York City from bankruptcy back in the 70s. Right. And he wrote this book called Bold Endeavors. And the book was a call for the U.S. to set up an infrastructure bank. Mm -hmm. And his idea was that only government was big enough to really do infrastructure Mm -hmm. at scale and that infrastructure was game-changing for the country. And, And the book consisted of 10 vignettes, things like the Erie Canal, the Transcontinental Railroad, rural electrification. And the interesting thing was what I took away from this, in addition to his conclusion that, you know, government was really the only ones who could get things to scale, each one of these things happened because there was one person 
who had the crazy vision to do one of these big infrastructure projects oh. and sort of kept at it and kept at it and kept at it until the government showed up with the money. This is a really interesting point. Most of us, when we read books, we're like, oh, that's, wow, look at that person. They're so different from me. And you saw, you saw yourself in some of these people. Exactly. Because I looked at that person and I said, well, what is it about those people? They're very strategic. Started in management consulting. I did pretty well. I think I'm pretty strategic. They're relentless and, and persistent. I thought I had some of that. And then finally, and in some ways, most importantly, they were great salespeople, right? They kept selling and selling and selling. And so, you know, I thought I was a pretty good salesperson. You have to be a good salesperson to be a successful entrepreneur. And so I said, huh, that would be really, exciting to, to do an infrastructure project at, that would change the face of America. The problem was I had no idea what that was. So I just sort of put that in the back of my head as I was going through my search for, for the next thing that I was going to do. Once you read this book and you started thinking that, like, describe how you're feeling. You know, I'm feeling um, excited, but sort of wandering in the wilderness, right? Because I was like, well, how am I going to possibly find an uh -huh. infrastructure project of this kind of scale to do? Like, you know, I wasn't an infrastructure guy. I'd never built a road or a bridge or a school or anything like that. So you're literally walking around being like, where am I going to find a gigantic problem that I can solve? Yeah, it, it, sort of. I was wandering in the wilderness going, hmm, it would be cool to do a, a, a new, an infrastructure project, but, but honestly, I had zero ideas. One of the pleasures of talking to Evan is just how foreign his approach to everything is to me. Like, this is a guy who literally went in search of a huge problem, the biggest problem he could find. I think I'm like most people when I say that is not my approach to problems. I don't go in search of them. If I'm honest, I sometimes hide from them. It's not good. I'm trying to get over that. But anyway, I definitely don't go searching for them, not like Evan. And in the days and weeks after reading Bold Endeavors, he set his mind to finding something big and hard to fix. At one point, he actually got an idea at his daughter's school. This was a K through eight private school in San Francisco. So a pretty good school. Pretty good school, you know, well-resourced, great teachers. And one teacher tells me a story and she says, well, you know, I did this assignment in my my class, where I asked each of the kids to grab a laptop, go to the TED website, pick a TED Talk, watch the TED Talk, and then create a PowerPoint presentation to present to the class. Yeah. And I said, wow, that's great. She said, yeah, it was terrific for the first eight girls. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, by the time the ninth girl started watching her video, the video started to slow down. And by the time the 10th girl started watching, they kind of all stopped and I had to stop the assignment. And I said, oh, so what you're saying is you had lousy internet. Right. Okay, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why it <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> that's why it didn't work. Pedagogically, it was fine. It was just literally, it was a, an infrastructure problem. Exactly. And I went to the school yeah. and I said, what do we have for internet access? And it turned out we had a cable modem. So we had a cable modem for 500 people. Mm -hmm. I have a cable modem at home for five people and I get no end of complaints from my children about how slow it is. Right. Okay, so imagine for 500 people. So that was problem one. Problem two, we had a Wi-Fi network that was eight years old. Uh -huh. It didn't reach all the classrooms, and it was super slow in the ones that it did. I mean, literally, it was described to me once like sucking peanut butter through a straw. Uh-huh. So I was like, okay, well, we got to fix this. So we brought fiber optic connection to the school and we put in a new Wi-Fi network and suddenly it all worked. Uh -huh. And then what started happening in the school was teachers were like, oh, I can trust the network now. 
So I'm going to start integrating technology into my classes. So that was sort of the next big sort of fortunate event was I had this interaction where I understood like, oh, internet access in schools, this might be a problem. And if it was a problem at Evan's daughter's fancy private school in San Francisco, tech capital to the world, chances are it was a problem everywhere. Technology is becoming increasingly important in education today. Classroom learning isn't just about writing papers and taking tests anymore. Students are using technology all the time to collaborate, to create, to present. Through technology, students can have access to huge virtual libraries and research materials and YouTube tutorials and all sorts of things that they don't have access to just in their regular libraries, right? And with online programs, teachers can tailor lessons and assignments and track students' progress. There's just tons and tons of ways that technology can be a huge benefit in the classroom. Access to broadband internet can be the difference between a student getting ahead and a student falling behind. So to Evan, this felt like, oh, this is a very important problem that I can set my mind to fixing. So while he's mulling all this and wondering, will internet for schools become my bold endeavor? Thousands of miles away in Washington, D.C., President Obama has created a new position in the government, a chief technology officer to the United States. And this new CTO's job is to find ways for technology to make America better, for security, for jobs, infrastructure, whatever. And the way this new CTO does that is by setting up these roundtables with tech people from across the country. Chances for industry leaders to brainstorm ideas or point out problems that the CTO's office could fix. And Evan, you know, being a successful entrepreneur with lots of money and contacts, he's exactly the kind of guy that gets invited to roundtables like this. And sure enough, I got a call from a friend who said, hey, um, we're bringing in, you know, 10 to 15 tech CEOs and serial entrepreneurs to the White House to talk about how to make America better with technology. You should come. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Okay, well, I'd be happy to come. But what the heck am I going to talk about? So I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. And I'm going like, yeah, school broadband. Hmm. So I started doing research. I found this survey that had been done by the FCC that said 80% of schools have lousy broadband. Mm -hmm. And I was like, great, that's all I need. So I go to this this tech table in uh, January of 2012 at the White House. And um, the first thing that happens is the chief technology officer of the United States, a guy named Anish Chopra at the time, comes in and says to all of us, okay, so what should we do to make America better with technology? And he gets to me and I say, well, we should fix the school broadband problem. And he looks at me with sort of like this confused look and says, what school broadband problem? All our schools have broadband. We, we have this program that spends $2.4 billion a year buying broadband for schools. And I'm like, yeah, they have cable modems and they have lousy Wi-Fi and so they can't use technology in schools. Never mind the fact that your Department of Education is counting on technology to help transform education in this country. And he sort of looks at me and then he moves on. And I'm like, okay, well, that was my, that was my chance. And I was like, well, I, I at least put the idea in his head. And are you, are you literally thinking like, okay, well, I guess that's not going to be my thing. Like at this point, are you think, where are you now in your sort of excitement? Well, here's the thing. That was the first time that I heard about this $2.4 billion a year program. Uh, like I didn't know about that. And so I was like, hey, bold endeavors, you got to like, have the vision and keep at it, keep at it till the government shows up with the money. Hey, the government's already shown up with the money. Uh, it's already there because if we can't fix this for $2.4 billion a year, 
boy, that that seems like plenty of funding. <laughs> right. So so then the president comes in, President Obama, and the CTO, Anish, sits down next to me. And the president gives his little speech. And then he starts going around the table. What should we do? What should we do? Mm-hmm. Anish sits down next to me. And while somebody's speaking, he leans over to me and he says, um, hey, uh, you should go fix that. Anish, the CTO says this to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I said, fix what? He's like, that school broadband problem. And I said, uh, aren't we here to tell you what to fix? <laughs> and he says to me, he says, ah, let me tell you a secret. We're the government. We don't fix anything. We make policy, we provide funding, but we can't actually go and fix problems. And I was like, wow, that is really <laughs> discouraging. They left, this, <laughs> so, they left this part out of bold endeavors. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But he said, but you should go start a nonprofit to fix this. And I said to him, I said, okay, um, well, what will you do for me? And he said, well, I'll introduce you to the people you need to know in the government. So at this point, I'm, I'm sort of leaving the room and, I'm, I, and I'm, all I can think about is like $2.4 billion. He's going to introduce me to the people in the government. This is what I need to do. And, and you're excited. Now. And I'm super excited. And I call Anish and I say, Anish, okay, I'm going to do it. He's like, do what? I was like, I'm going to start that nonprofit to fix the school broadband problem. And he says, um, uh, really? I said, yeah. He's like... Nobody ever takes me up on that offer. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to. And so January 2012 is when I uh, started Education Superhighway. So I want to stop you at this point because this sounds like the emotional high point. I call it the, the entrepreneurship and emotional roller coaster. Uh-huh. There isn't an entrepreneur out there who doesn't experience it. Right. The highs are higher than anything else you've ever done for work, and the lows are lower. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I am, you know, January 2012, I'm at a high. I'm like, I found the opportunity. I'm going to have a chance to change the world. You know, let's go. And how, how, are you, how are you behaving when you're on that high? What do you do? Well, I talk incessantly to my wife. Uh-huh. I'm saying I found my purpose. I found what I'm going to do next. I'm going to I'm going to do this thing. And she's she's like, "Okay, great. We're you know we're starting this journey again for the fourth time." And um, it always starts uh, the same way. You come home really excited. It always starts the same way. You come home excited, and then you make a decision, and and she's like, "You're about to go into the black hole again, aren't you?" And I'm like, "Yep, about to go into the black hole." Uh, because you, as you know, as a as a startup person yourself, like the first few years of a startup, you've got to be all in. Yeah. What's the, what's the first thing you do to like sort of get this thing up and running? The first thing I do is I figure out, okay, what's my plan? How am I, how am I going to attack this problem? And that's when I realized that, okay, I need to figure out what the problem is. What are the root causes? Why do we have this? It's interesting. Your answer is a little bit counterintuitive. The first thing that you did was was essentially, I have to figure out what problem I'm solving. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which I think is a lot of people might blow past that because you've already settled on a problem, right? You know the problem. It's broadband. I, I just gotta I gotta get that money, you know, and start fixing the problem. What made you want to dig deeper into the actual nature of the problem? Well, because every problem has a set of root causes, right? Uh-huh. And so I knew, yeah, the, the outcome was that our kids didn't have good broadband. So why was that? You know, what was the reason that this was happening? After the break, Evan discovers a billion reasons why this was happening. That's right after these words from our sponsors. 
there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Evan Marwell. When we left off, Evan had just started a new nonprofit, Education Superhighway, which was intended to provide broadband internet access at every school in America. And in the beginning, Evan was just trying to figure out why is it that schools don't have good internet already? And the first thing he wanted to look at was that $2.4 billion that the CTO to America had mentioned. That $2.4 billion was in something called the E-rate program. This program was supposed to help schools pay for high-speed broadband. And it was a lot of money, $2.4 billion. Evan wondered, if this money is supposed to be buying good broadband, but 80% of schools don't have good broadband, what exactly is that $2.4 billion being spent on? Now, there was a website where schools applied for money for the E-rate program. Tens of thousands of applications a year, each asking for a small piece of that $2.4 billion. Evan thought, one way to answer that question is just to review all these applications. Maybe he could learn a thing or two about how that money was being spent. So there were literally tens of thousands of applications every year from schools for this program. And I said, how the heck are we going to review all this information? And this is another one of these examples of, you know, uh, your network can be really helpful. Uh So I call up a friend of mine who's working at a hedge fund and I say, hey, uh, any chance that some of those quant guys at your hedge fund could write some code to scrape down all this information and put it into an Excel spreadsheet for me. <laughs> Any chance you want to spare like, I don't know, let me half, ask. Uh, half a million dollars worth in engineering costs to write a little data scraping program for me? Yeah, and the answer came back, sure, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice friend to have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. You know, your network is incredibly important and the care and feeding of that network is incredibly important so that when the time comes that you need to make a call like that, they're excited to help. Yeah, but talk about that. How did you sort of care and, I don't know, like, I mean, this makes it sound very quid pro quo, but like, talk about like all the the groundwork that went into building the relationship to the point where when you called this person, they were like, sure. Yeah, so I would say that I probably spend... um, you know, a quarter of my time building and caring and feeding my network. And what that means essentially is anybody who asks me for a meeting, Mm -hmm. pretty much, except for salespeople, I take it. Really? Pretty much. I got a LinkedIn message a month ago from, I must have been a 25-year-old kid working for Google in Ireland. And he said, can I do a call with you? Because I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z and ed tech and would love your, to under, hear your story and understand and get your advice. So I took it. You know, most people don't take that call, right? Yeah. Well, I uh, don't take that call. Right. And, right. and I think when I don't, I'm always like, because I want to, because I'm curious about people and I like meeting people. But I don't because I have this notion of like, oh, I'm a CEO now. My time is valuable. I shouldn't be taking these calls because I have to stay focused. And what you're, it sounds like you're saying well, is you, like... You do have to stay focused, but but you need to invest in your uh, network. So you, you think that's a mistake on my part? Well, I mean, it's hard for me to judge your particular situation, but I think the time 
invested in, you know, building your network. And I, I should say with no expectations, right? So I, like, I don't have any expectations for this person. Yeah. But what I know is that over time, if you are helpful to people, that when you need help, people will be helpful to you. Right. And it's not always true, but but I can tell you for sure that the success that I have had as an entrepreneur has been in no small part because of the incredible help that I've gotten from people in my network along the way. Uh-huh. I have a few sort of postulates about, you know, how to be successful as an entrepreneur. One is you got to invest in your network. The second is you got to be focused, uh-huh. like focus, focus, focus. I preach that all day long. Right. And then the third is, it's better to be lucky than smart. <laughs> Which is hands down 100% true. <laughs> okay, you you call your friend. He helps you out with some data analysis guys who can help code some scraping programs. And you start combing through the, what is it, tens of thousands of applications? Yeah, ten, about 50,000 applications. 50,000 applications. Yeah. And what are you looking for? how's the money being spent? Mm -hmm. And what we learn is that schools were way overpaying. The typical school was paying $22 a megabit per month for their internet access, while businesses were paying like three. Whoa. And so if you just put that in perspective, paying $22 a month per megabit would be like paying $500 a month for your cable modem. Whoa. Okay. And so we were like, okay, this is a problem. The affordability of broadband is clearly one of the problems. Was it sort of like an aha moment for you when you sort of looked at what came back when you like actually analyzed all these 50,000 applications? Oh, it it was uh, an incredible moment because I was like, okay, here's a problem that can be solved. This is an execution problem. Uh This is not where we have to invent some new technology. Fiber exists, Wi-Fi exists, internet access exists. And the money exists. And the money exists. So what the heck's going on? And now, aha, what's going on is that schools are completely overpaying for their internet access. Uh In addition to looking and seeing that schools were overpaying for bandwidth, we also found that a billion dollars a year of this money was being spent on phone service. And so then I talked to somebody who's like, well, it's because in 1996, the way you got broadband was through dial-up connections. So you had to have a phone line. So it paid for phone lines so that you could get a dial-up connection. And I was like, oh my God, a billion dollars was being spent on the phone lines of schools, which were eligible because back in the day, that's how you got your internet access. So schools weren't even spending this on broadband. They were just sort of using it to defray their just operating costs. Exactly. Got it. The program that was funding it all needed to change. All right. So now how are you feeling? So now I'm feeling psyched because I'm like, okay, like every one of these problems can be solved. So we got on a plane and we went to to D.C., And in D.C., we went and met with a woman named Karen Cater, who at the time was running the uh, Office of Educational Technology in the U.S. Department of Education. And we went to her and we said, hey, we need to fix the school broadband problem. She's like, okay, what problem? Nobody knew that schools had a broadband problem, right? It was like the CTO of America when I said, we have to fix the school broadband problem. And he looked at me with like a blank stare. That was the reaction we got everywhere. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so we say, okay, 80% of schools, only 4 million kids have, you know, good broadband and we need to fix that. She's like, okay, well, how do we fix that? Like, we've, we've already got funding. What's wrong? And so then we take her through our little consulting study and we lay out the problem for her. And she's like, oh, interesting. And this is something you've been through quite a few times at this point, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. What is that like to constantly be like, we have to solve this problem and people are saying, what problem? Is that is that unusual in your experience? Uh, no, that's the, tr- that's the truth of every entrepreneur, right? You have the opportunity because nobody else had solved the problem you found. And to me, it's just like, you know, that's the sales piece of this, right? Mm-hmm. So you've evangelized and then what happens? And then she tells me, you need to go talk to the FCC. Okay. She helps me arrange a phone call with them. And so I get on the phone with this person, give him my pitch. And he says to me, well, how are we going to solve that? Like, how are you going to pay for that? I said, there's $600 million being spent on phone service. At the time, I thought the number was $600 million. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, $600 million being spent on phone service. We don't need to do that. That's not helping anything. He's like, there is not $600 million being spent on phone service. (laughs) And I'm like, no, no. Like, I looked at the data and I'm pretty sure. And he hangs up on me. And I was like, Yeah, he hangs up on me. He literally hung up on you? He literally hung up on me. And I was like, okay, that didn't go so well. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, policy is one of the problems. I'm just talking to the first person who has anything to do with the policy that's related to this. And he hung up on me. (laughs) How did, I haven't, I've been hung up on once in my life, I think. Has this happened to you before? No. How did that feel? Uh, okay, remember that emotional roller coaster? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm at the bottom. <laughs> I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> right? So like this is like this is the end of the line if I can't figure out an answer to this. Right. This is our money. And if we can't get the money to be spent more effectively and we can't do some other stuff that we need to do, like how are we gonna solve this problem? And are you mad at this this government bureaucrat who won't even Take the time to listen to you talk about it? More I'm flabbergasted. Uh-huh. Because I'm sitting here looking at the data, and he's like, there's no way. And I'm sitting there going, but, like, I got the data. Like, (laughs) 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 so I'm kind of like, it was my first introduction to the fact that um, government is not necessarily (laughs) data-driven. But we're changing that. (laughs) But we're changing that. <laughs> That's like, I'm just laughing because it's a pretty, it's a pretty big understatement. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. here's what happens. Three weeks later, my phone rings and I'm like, you know, hello. And it's this guy who hung up on me and he's calling me back. And I, he's, you know, he's like, he's like, I think we got cut off. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, not quite. He says, um, yeah, about that phone service. Uh, it's probably a billion dollars. Okay, I'm back at the top of the roller coaster. <laughs> I'm like, a billion dollars? He's like, yeah, I had some people look into it. And yeah, it's probably a billion dollars. So let's talk some more. What happened during that? Did he ever get the story of what happened? We for sure were creating noise around this problem, right? In the Department of Ed and like trying to get to other people and all this kind of thing. And so I think I think he partially realized we weren't going away. Um I think his boss was interested in this problem. And so I think he was like, well, let me look into this. And I, and I think what he really realized was that, oh my God, we're the FCC, 
we spend $2.4 billion a year on this, and we have no idea what we're spending the money on. Right. And that's a scary thought if you're... And that that is a scary thought. Right. As he became a partner, did he ever apologize for hanging up on you? That's not his personality. (laughs) (laughs) And he probably wouldn't describe it as hanging up. (laughs) He probably is like, like, I got to (laughs) go. And then hung up. (laughs) So So he says it's a billion dollars. So now he's like. So he says it's a billion dollars. And he says, come back to D.C. And let's talk some more. And, And so that sort of started our engagement at the FCC. So Evan gets connected with the FCC. But then he encounters the same problem that he's been encountering over and over again. He says, we have to solve this problem. The people he talks to say, what problem? There is no problem. And they give him a blank stare. And what's worse, some of the people who claim there's not a problem are the telecom providers who are getting that billion dollars that schools are spending on phone lines. So not only do they not see the problem, they really don't want to see the problem. The fact that no one but Evan believed that the problem was actually a problem was, of course, itself a problem. And one that wouldn't go away until Evan figured out a way to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that the internet in public schools was bad. Prove it so clearly that no one could look at the proof and deny that the problem existed. How Evan found that proof? After these words from our sponsors. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Evan Marwell. So at this point, Evan is desperately trying to prove that this problem, that internet in public schools is bad, is a real problem. And, of course, he knows it's a problem because he's looked at a bunch of data that suggests it's a problem. He has that survey that he found on the FCC's own website where they actually surveyed people and 80% of them said that the internet didn't work. He has also run his data scraping program to find that schools are wildly overpaying for their internet and also that a lot of the money that they're paying is actually just going to regular old phone service. But somehow that is not compelling enough to the people that he is talking to. And he realizes he needs even more compelling proof that this problem that he knows is a problem is actually a problem. And so the next thing he does is come up with a way to prove it to the people who don't believe it or don't want to believe it. And the way he's going to prove that is with a test, a simple test that every school across the country could take that would measure how fast the internet in that school was. He thought if he can just design this test and make it easy for schools to take, then that will be the proof that he needs. So he called it another favor. He got a computer engineer to make this simple, easy-to-use speed test that any network administrator at any school district could run. And then all they needed to do was get all the school districts in the country to run it. Not all of them, but a big majority of them. So Evan and his team got the Department of Education to send out a huge email blast to all the schools to publicize it on their website. Evan and his team got the FCC to talk about this test. News sites wrote about it. They did everything they could to get the word out about this high-speed internet test to the tens of thousands of schools across the country. And in the end, we get a thousand people to test their broadband. (laughs) And we're like, oh, crap. (laughs) How How many do you need? A lot more than a thousand people (laughs) (laughs) test their broadband. But remember what Evan said? It's better to be lucky than smart. At this point, he got some luck in the form of someone who's very close to him. So uh, I get a call from my mother. And, you know, she's been following what I've been doing. And and she says to me— Part of your network um, that I I assume you've been taking taking care of, attending to. I've been taking care of Uh it, exactly. Uh, And she says, I just ran into my old boss. 
His name was Kurt Kiefer. He was in charge of all ed tech for the Wisconsin Department of Education. And, uh, and I told him what you were doing. And he said, oh, that's really interesting because, um, you know, we're, we have to roll out this testing across the state and we have no idea if our broadband networks are ready for it. Why don't you give him a call? Maybe you can work together. I call him up and, and he's like, yeah, I've got this problem. I hear you're doing something about measuring broadband. And I'm like, yeah. Right. And he says, and he says, okay, well, I know your mother and you're from Wisconsin, so you must be an okay guy. So let's try it. <laughs> so we launched this program where the Department of Education in Wisconsin markets to all of the school districts and schools in Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And we get 75% of them to test their broadband. What strikes me about this, at this point, you've got this sort of like recursive nesting uh, sort of set of problems that you're solving to solve this larger problem. And at this point, you're way down in this loop. You have this big problem, which is slow internet, no broadband. Then you sort of figure out the root causes. Even though you figured out the root causes, you can't get the people in power to believe the root causes. So then you have to figure out a way to convince them. So then you need data. But then to get the data... You don't have a way to data. So then you have to like sort of go state by state and start partnering with state departments of education. At this point, you're so far away from this original problem. It's a lot of faith that this far away from where you started, it's eventually going to lead you back to a solution. Did it feel that way? No, it felt like I'm on the path. I am Uh making progress. The glass is half full, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I felt like I was completely on the right track. Uh-huh. And, you know, you, you take a lot of left turns that you should have turned right and you got to get back on course. So it's not a straight line, as as you can tell. Right. But but no, I felt like I'm making progress here. Got it. OK. So you, you have this aha moment, like because through through the Wisconsin experiment, you realize, OK, this is our path in order to get a big enough data set to prove that there's an actual problem to the powers that be. We have to start partnering with state departments of education. Right. And turns out Kurt's an amazing guy, amazingly well-connected. So we start calling on other states and we give Kurt as a reference. And he says, yes, you should work with these guys. They're good guys. I know his mother. Um, (laughs) And uh, ultimately something like 30 states or something like that over the next uh, year that partner with us and we do these tests and we end up with 800,000 people in 35,000 schools test their broadband. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a data set. And shockingly, the data says only 10% of our kids have good enough broadband to use technology in the classroom. So, like, we knew the answer before we started, but now we have data. Uh And so now I'm able to take that data to the White House. And I show up with this data, and they're like, oh, this is real. And fortunately, the new chairman of the FCC, this guy Tom Wheeler, was a business guy. And so he was like, well, here's the data. This makes sense. And by the way, we're, we're paying, you know, schools are paying eight times as much as businesses. So like, we can't be doing this too well. So we, we got to make some changes. Mm-hmm. And so after, after a year and a half of work, the, the FCC does a major overhaul, major modernization of the E-rate program. They phase out that billion dollars of phone service. So that takes us from a billion four a year for broadband to 2.4 billion. But then they add another billion and a half dollars. So now it's a $3.9 billion program. And it's poised to make all that data that was confidential 
publicly available. And that was key because we then took all that data about who was buying what from whom and at what price, and we put it online. And as a result, every school in the country could see what every other school was buying and who they were buying it from and how much they were paying. And every service provider could see where do I have opportunities to sell my product because I have a better price. And as a result of that, we've seen an 80% decrease in the cost of broadband for schools. Just by creating a a marketplace with less information asymmetry. Exactly. And and so that 80% decline in the cost of broadband has led to that 10x increase in the number of kids that now have enough broadband to use technology in the classroom. So right now, in America, what percentage of schools have access to broadband internet? About 88% of schools and roughly 88% of the 46 million students in public school districts have the key components of good internet access. And when we started, when you started this company, how many students had access to broadband? In 2013, only 4 million students had access to high-speed broadband in their classrooms. So that was less than 10% of the 46 million public school students in the country. So we went from 4 million students having access to 40, and that's that's almost 90% of, of students in America now. And it's basically all because of you. Well, I wouldn't say it's all because of me. I know I mean, you we've would. Had a, we've had a I'm lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people who the, you made this There's happen. There's a lot of people, <laughs> but none of them got the ball rolling. Like, if, if you hadn't gone on this mission a while ago, I think it's safe to say that we wouldn't be anywhere close to where we are today. Yeah, I think that's fair. It strikes me that you had to be so many things to solve this problem. You had to be a management consultant. You had to be a data uh, a data gathering service. You had to be, you know, a data analysis shop. You had to do some coding. You had to be a, a networker. And then you also, and then ultimately you had to be, you had to go into the business of sort of like policy advocacy. And, and then we had to be product developers to put out the website where everyone could see what everyone else was paying. Right. And then we had to be network consultants to work with school districts to help them figure out what they needed to buy and buy and run good procurements and work with the service providers. And then we have to be salespeople to convince service providers to bid on these opportunities. Uh So yes, we have had to be a lot of things, Wow! but kind of just like any other business. Yeah. At this point, Evan's been at it for six years, a champion of the school of persistence versus the school of pivoting a champion of diving into all the minute details while never forgetting the big picture of what it's all in service to at the end. And since Evan and I first talked, Education Superhighway has released a new report with updated numbers. According to the report, 44.7 million students in America are connected. That's 97% of America's public school students. There are a little more than 2 million students to go. Ever optimistic, Evan said he's pretty confident those students will be online by his goal, the year 2020. Next time on Without Fail, I talked to a woman who grew her business from a simple storefront where she was the only employee to an empire that now brings in over a billion dollars in revenue every year. And she says that the main thing that helped her business take off was a change in the way she thought about herself. Until I forgave myself for being female and African-American and smart at the same time, 
I did okay. My business started to really grow the day that I forgave myself for being smart and female. My candid and fascinating conversation with Janice Bryant Howard on the next episode of Without Fail. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Sarah Platt. It's edited by me, Nazanin Rafsanjani, and Devin Taylor. Jarrett Floyd mixed the episode, music by Bobby Lord. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. Or better yet, tell your friends. Don't just keep it a secret. Let everyone know. This is a show to listen to. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>